Hello, depressed Jet fans. Welcome to the Week 4 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Thanks for stopping by. I really appreciate the listen. We have a terrific show lined up. Uh, this, of course, is the bye week, but I know Jets fans, the real Jets fans, don't take any time off. You guys and gals, uh, I've been covering this team a long time, and I know you all too well, and you're pouring your hearts into this, and I know 0-3, it sucks right now, and I totally get it. Uh, hey, I'm a Mets fan, so I know what this kind of torture is like, and I, I understand your passion, and it's a bye week, but we're not stopping. We're grinding through. We're going to talk about what's going on with this team. Uh, we're going to try to entertain you a little bit, uh, provide some insight onto what's gone wrong, maybe a couple of things that have gone right. And you're going to love our guest. Coming up in the second quarter, our special guest is the one and only Joe Klecko. Jets great. Voted recently, actually last week, to the Jets all-time team. The next few weeks are big for Joe in his quest for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And let me explain that. A 25-member Blue Ribbon, Ribbon Committee will be announced Thursday. And this committee is being formed because this is the 100th year anniversary of the NFL. And so in honor of the centennial, Canton is opening its doors real wide. And that should hopefully hope Joe, Joe Klecko get into the Hall of Fame. He's considered a senior candidate. And this year, instead of inducting two senior candidates, which what they would normally do, they're actually going to induct 10. So my motto is Joe must go to Canton. I think some of your old time Jet fans out there will get the Joe must go reference. In this case, it's positive. It's Joe must go to Canton. And we'll talk to Joe in the second quarter. For now, the current state of the Jets. So here we are at 0-3 on the bye. And let me just say something. I disagree with all this Adam Gase hate out there. Uh, you know, you know me very well. I, I'm as cynical as anyone covering the team. Uh, but I'm fair. And I think you gotta look at this fairly, this situation they're in on offense. Yes, the offense is terrible. They've only had one touchdown in three games. That's, you know, we don't even have to explain how terrible it is. You know it. But let's look at the facts. They've played a third string quarterback for six quarters. I'm talking about Luke Falk, of course. I mean, you have to face reality here. This is a quarterback-hungry league, and this is a quarterback, Luke Falk, that no one wanted. He got fired three times in 12 months, including by the Jets, by the way, at the end of the preseason. He was out there for any team to pick up. Um, they, no one did, so the Jets brought him back at the practice squad. Next thing you know, he's starting. So it's really unrealistic to expect the Jets to be an offensive machine or have anything resembling a functioning offense when you have a quarterback like a Luke Falk. And I'm not picking on Luke Falk. Uh, it would be one thing if this were happening under Darnold. I would say, yeah, you got to hold Adam Gase's feet to the fire or even Trevor Simeon, who has started a bunch of games in the league. But Luke Falk has played half the amount of snaps so far. And I think people need to just calm down. I mean, what did you expect in New England? A third string quarterback, on the road against one of the t one or two best defenses in the league against the smartest defensive coach in history on a short week no one's talked about that the jets were coming off a monday night game they had a short week to prepare for the patriots with a quarterback who's never started a game and we're going to criticize the coach for that uh, look 
I'm not a gay apologist. And for those of you who read me on ESPN.com, you'll know I actually advocated for Mike McCarthy back in January. So I wasn't thrilled with the gays hire. I still don't know if he's the right guy. My jury's still out. But let's be fair here. The guy at least deserves a chance and a fair shot before we break out the pitchforks. Um, you know, it's it's just too early. It's three games and people want to fire him. Let him get his people back. Let him get Darnold back. Let him get Herndon back and see if he can figure out this offensive line. And then we'll grade him on that. One thing I will say, though, that is a concern and this is a little bit technical, but I'm going to throw it out. We know that Jets' pass protection has been really lousy so far, right? 13 sacks allowed. That That's inexcusable for a veteran offensive line. And I think what we have here, we could have a different philosophy. We have Gase and an offensive line coach, Frank Pollock. They've never worked together before, and I think they have two different philosophies on pass protection. I did the research. When Gase was at Miami, they, uh, they used – they were very – used very little of five-man protections. In fact, last year, they had only 288 dropbacks with a five-man protection. That ranked 31st in the league. He always, and even going back further in Miami, Adam's always been a guy who's liked to use six, even maybe seven-man protections. Now, this year, all of a sudden, the Jets are using five-man protections. They've used five-man protection uh, I think they're right at the bottom of the league. I think nine of their 13 sacks have come with only five guys blocking, of course, the five offensive linemen. And I looked up uh, Pollock's background, and he's been more of a five-man guy. Last year in Cincinnati, they were in the middle of the league in terms of stats on five-man. You go back a little further, he was with Dallas. They were mainly a five-man protection. So I wonder if there's just a difference in philosophy on pass protection because what we're seeing out there right now is an offensive line that doesn't look like it knows what it's doing. And that shouldn't be the case. And I think that's coaching because, hey, I'm not saying these are, this is a great offensive line. They should be average to good, though. And it's not even close to that. And they have to use the bye week to get that figured out and get on the same page. That is the end of the first quarter. And welcome to the second quarter. This is the Green Room. Each week we bring in a special guest. And this week I am really excited because we have one of the Jets' all-time greats, a Ring of Honor member, Pro Bowl at three different defensive line positions, All-Pro many, many times, former AFC Defensive Player of the Year, none other than Joe Klecko. Joe, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Rich. It's it's always great connecting with some of the former Jets, especially the great ones, and uh, can't thank you enough. And I just want to start out, before we get into some of your background, and you have set such a incredible journey, and we'll talk about the Hall of Fame possibilities, but I just want to get your take. A lot of Jet fans are kind of frustrated right now, as you could imagine, with the 0-3 start, and I know you watch the games. I know you still bleed green, so I'm wondering... What's your take on the 0-3 start? Are you frustrated, angry, disappointed? What's uh, what's Joe Klecko thinking? Well, the very first game was frustrating. I agree with you there. I mean, they gave away a few times they could have scored. The score could have been a little bit more even than 16 nothing in the first half. And then the second half, they really kind of fell apart. And maybe that was a learning process between a young quarterback and his new you know, head coach and play caller. But, uh, you know, otherwise in that, you know, losing Darnold, is really being snake bitten. That was just horrible because, you know, now you have, you know, you're going after two guys, one who is your backup and who has never really started. 
the other one who's never really suited for a NFL football game. I mean, right. you couldn't ask for a bit worse situation for a team struggling to find their identity on offense anyway. Uh, defensively, you know, I think uh, Greg Williams does a great job wherever he goes. I think very highly of him as a coach, no matter what. And he's got some pretty good tools over there, too. I mean, we have two of the best safeties in the league, and the defensive line now is, I think, coming into their own. So uh, uh, defensively, you know, we could be in every every game defensively, but to be snake bitten the way we were with a quarterback especially, that was tough. Yeah, yeah, great points there. And I'm wondering, I know it's only three games. Uh, wondering, what's your early take on Adam Gase? Well, you now the book's still out, really, because really the first uh, game, I think he could have made a little bit of adjustments at halftime to where it could have helped him out in the second half because Buffalo did. And then the second two, I mean, you knew you had one guy to go to in a way in Le'Veon Bell, okay, mm-hmm. to really get you out of a lot of your situations. The receivers played well for the rookie in the third game. You know, they, they did. They, they caught the ball and, and tried. I mean, Robert Emerson was open a lot, and, and he hit him. He really threw the ball well. But, you know, the play calling, when you don't have a real um, uh, full roster, if you will, maybe, you know, right. to set a game plan straight, you know, it's tough to play play call for a guy who you haven't had any really how much of an understanding he has on game day. The game happens much faster on game day, and as a rookie quarterback, that's tough. And I'm dying to get your opinion on Leonard Williams. He was drafted sixth overall in 2015, uh, unlike you. I mean, you came up you know, as a lower-round draft pick. No one knows defensive line play better than you. You spent your life in the trenches. A lot of fans are getting on Leonard because he's not coming up with the big sack numbers. Uh, do you think he's a disappointment so far? Well, he had a good first year. Last year he dropped off a good bit, you know, and I think that's a time and place where you go home and you do look yourself in the in the mirror and, and you know, you got to uh, face the music yourself and come back and get ready and, and, and do better. Uh, he's had a slow start again. Does he have the ability to be a good player? I think he does because he showed that. I think he has the desire, you know what I mean? And, you know, I remember reading a spiff about him, but I think he was dating Ronnie Lott's daughter. That's true, yes. Ronnie Ronnie was a a bit of a mentor to him. Mm -hmm. And it's very good to have a mentor that tells you how bad you are and not how good you are. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody, you know, I remember my wife was my best mentor. I came out of the game, and I said, oh, my God, I played terrible. She goes, what? You played great. I said, what do you mean? There's six, seven guys around you doing this and doing that. I said, but I only made one tackle. Everybody else made them. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have a great game, and I'd say, oh, I had two sacks. He was, you suck. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was a better uh, 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 advocate for me, really, to get better. Right. And I think that's what he had in the first year with Ronnie Lott. I don't know what happened last year. Of course, this year he started all slow again. You should be expecting more from him than what he's doing. Yeah, maybe you hit on so maybe he should start dating Ronnie's daughter again, and that could be a turnaround for him. I don't know if he does or not, yep. uh, they don't anymore, but you, they did for uh-huh. a while. So um, I don't know. Maybe that's we could trace it back to that. But uh, yeah, that's interesting about your wife being a big supporter, and of course you had 
many more good games than bad games. We know that, and and uh, I think you'll be a uh, senior candidate for the Hall of Fame this year. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, this year because of the NFL centennial, they're expanding the class. So instead of the normal two senior candidates going in, the class will be expanded to 10. I've been on record. I think you absolutely belong in Canton. I think all Jet fans would agree. I'm wondering now as you, and this will be starting up here in the next few weeks, the selection process. What do you, what does Joe Klecko think going into it now? What do you think your chances are now that this class has been expanded? Well, the chances are better, <laughs> you know, yeah. no doubt, you know, I think one or two going in with one or going in with two makes it a tougher road to hoe without a doubt. But, you know, they're going to select 10 guys. But now you have a, uh, you know, the uh, the Hall of Fame is talking about, you know, guys that, you know, back from the Ken Bulldog days, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But as far as the selection committee for uh, the numbers, you know, the numbers work better. The reason being is because they're going to put 10 players in, you know, and uh, for me, that's much of a better chance. I know I've been talked about a few days, you know, leading up to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, they 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 really um, clarify, not clarify, it's the wrong way, you know, uh, go more with the contemporary players than they do the really, really. You know, the Canton Bulldog type players from years ago, I think the chances would get better. Right. I've heard that, too. There's been some talk, you know, it's like unofficial talk that they might try to put an emphasis on the, you know, the really older type, you know, from the 20s and 30s. We don't know yet that Blue Ribbon panel will be coming together very shortly and they'll be in charge of that. And you mentioned something about numbers. I'm going to throw out some numbers here. Even though the NFL sack statistic didn't become official until 1982. So if anyone Googles Joe Klecko on his NFL.com bio, you're going to see 24 and a half sacks, which is actually pretty good in itself. But before that, Joe was killing quarterbacks at a crazy rate. From 77 to 81, he had 51 and a half sacks. That gives him a total of 75 and a half for his career. Again, it doesn't appear because it wasn't an official stat. Joe, those numbers are off the charts. I think that alone should be enough to push you over the edge. Um, I'm wondering, in your 20 years as a modern candidate and not getting in, how disappointing was that, you know, for 20 years not getting, not getting the, uh, the nod? Seriously, as far as disappointing, I, I, you know, listen, I'd be very disappointed, very disappointed if my child was sick. You know, not getting in the Hall of Fame is extremely disappointing because it is the pinnacle. It is it. It's the top. You know, and there's only 300 and some players out of the 100 years now that have ever been elected to the Hall of Fame. That would be astounding to be part of that. You know what I mean? But as far as all that time goes of the years that I didn't get in, I followed it, of course, to the T, and, and, and I was hoping for the best. But when it didn't happen, it, it wasn't as devastating to me as people might have thought, you know, because I'm pretty good in my own skin. I'm not I'm not worried about nothing else that goes around me. But as far as wanting it, I wanted more than a lot of things in this world, there's no doubt. But, uh, you know, you were mentioning about the sacks, you know. Joe DeLambalore said something to me that was questioned to him, and when he and he's been a big big advocate of mine as a Hall of Famer, and he said to the people, he said uh, some of the writers had asked him, "Yeah, but what is he? Is Joe a nose tackle, a defensive tackle, or a defensive end?" And Tom Miller said, 
does it really matter? Every place he went, he dominated. You know, so how they looked at things back then, I think, was skewed a little bit. And I think if it wasn't as skewed, it may have been a different story. Yeah, you make a great point. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a nose tackle, a defensive tackle. It just should be how is the guy as a football player? You know, I mean, that's yeah. that's that's what well, they're putting it, it, in. How good a football player is he? The Hall of Fame is not a team sport. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even though that comes into play, we all know that because of championships. But when you you know you get lucky to be surrounded with great coaches and great players, and we had some of those years that were pretty fantastic. We had teams that were on the pinnacle, without a doubt. Yeah, but like anybody else, you know, I mean, believe me, everybody thought the Falcons would beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl and all of a sudden see what happened, you know. But we had those kind of teams. We were right there a a couple of times, but it just didn't work out. And I I think that maybe is something that uh, a lot of things get looked at because it's not individual. And they look at that, you know, where the Super Bowl rings a big deal in our league. Yeah, I was that was going to be my next question. I was going to want, you know, I think it should be more for quarterbacks the Super Bowl factor. But do you? you sounds like you think it could be a factor that you never reached a Super Bowl uh, could be a factor as well. Well, I always think, and you know, listen, everybody, especially back in the days when when I played, back in the days, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, back when they didn't wear didn't wear face masks. Yeah. Anyway, Let you know, in the early eighties, you know. The, the media is nowhere near what it is now. You know what I mean? The hype that you get today, you know, when I was really in my younger years and I was playing against guys, you know, I'm not, I won't mention names, but I'm playing against tackles as a defensive end. And the guys that are going to the Pro Bowl are going, Joe, <laughs> I play against both of you, and there's not even a comparison. Mm-hmm. But we were, uh, you know, we were 3-13. Three and, three and 13. Right. And you don't get no news coverage way back then when you're three and thirteen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the thing about it is, is it was lost in the very beginning. You know, and really the first time we went to playoffs is the first time I went to the to the Pro Bowl because of the recognition you get because you're in the playoffs. Right. You know what I mean? So um, those kind of things matter mattered more back then than they do now. I mean, today you can be on a, a on a on a terrible team and be known as an outstanding player. And you get recognized by the other players because they find out about you. But back when I started, that wasn't the case. Yeah, you mentioned Joe Delamalure, and I know Howie Long, Anthony Munoz, all of the contemporary guys from your era have been, come out very strongly, you know, on your behalf, saying that you belong. So that's certainly got to be gratifying, right? To hear, you know, greats, you know, fellow greats come out and, and lobby on your behalf. Well, I guess if there's something for me to hold on to, if I never do make it, you know, it is that the guys I played against and the coaches I played against, you know, they know what I was, okay? Now, you know, would I like to, to still have the, the, the accolade of Hall of Fame? Absolutely, no doubt in my mind. But, you know, all these guys that I played against, John Hanna's the one of the best ever. Anthony Munoz is one of the best ever. Dwight Stevens is one of the best ever. For John Hatter to come out and say Howie Long and Joe Klecko were the two toughest guys he ever played against, I think that that says some credibility. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I mean that that should carry more weight than than anything. I mean, when your peers are saying stuff like that, uh, and I also think you know, like you mentioned, moving positions. Uh, a lot of times that was at a necessity, right? Because the team was switching schemes or you were injured and they wanted to change your spot. So I think you were just 
falling in line with the team framework at that point, right? I mean, I mean, you could have been a nose tackle. If you had to pick one position where you could have stayed your whole career and dominated, what would it have been? I would like to have played nose tackle how Bud Carson played it. With the shaded, the shaded nose? Yeah. yeah, because he allowed me the freedom to do whatever I wanted to as long as I didn't get stupid and give up yards and all. And I never did because the way I played it gave centers fits. I wasn't always going to be lined up in the same place every time where he could tee off on me. They had to worry about me moving. They had to worry about me jumping. They, they had to worry about every. I mean, they, you see me jump from one side to the other. You guys never heard, of course. Say, you should hear the offensive line and have to change their calls and everything. They're going crazy. There's times that they forgot to block me. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, it, it was really funny because that's what that would do. That scheme that Bud had was tremendous for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and being strong and being quick, uh, it, it really tended for me. You know, most most nose tackles, even then, were more or less a bigger guy and didn't move very well. Well, that's, it wasn't the case with me, and that's why I gave him fits. So if there's one position I would like to play, it would be inside. Man, could you imagine? I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but like, uh, like a, tw- a healthy Joe Klecko in today's NFL with the type of style that you bring, you're almost you're like an Aaron Donald before there was Aaron Donald. And uh, <laughs> how much do you think a healthy Joe Klecko in the prime of his career would be making? How much money you'd be making now? The way the salaries have escalated. Yeah, it's, it would be pretty nice. You know, there's no <laughs> doubt. I mean, you know, you take a look, at, and it's you know, I, God bless him. I really do. I mean that. I'm glad to see them. I just hope they're good people and they do the right things with their money, you know. But uh, you know, uh, I think you know one of the great things too is that the the uh, the the pension parity thing we're going after as NFL players. John Riggins' his wife is heading it up, you know, for uh, for the veterans. Uh, I, I hope the players, the young players who are making that twenty, thirty million dollars a year now, realize how they got to that, you know. And it was us us old guys helping do that. What was the most you ever made in a year? About eight fifty, and me and Randy White the same year I retired. We, me and Randy, retired at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just about we we're the two highest paid defensive linemen in the league, wow. and eight hundred fifty. But I mean, not for naught, guys are just journeymen make that money now. Oh my gosh! I mean, guys get like get roster bonuses, like weekly roster bonuses that are. I mean, God, it's, it has changed so much, but. I, I, I think you redefined the position myself, and uh, I, I'm just wondering, you were part of a good group. The New York Sack Exchange will live, you know, in, in lore, and in Jets lore. When when someone mentions that to you, when I say New York Sack Exchange, what do you think about? What pops into your mind? Dominant. We were. We were just tough. We were tough, you know. I remember we were t- – I forget the coach's name we had on our, on our staff at that time, Jim. I, he was a linebacker coach, mm-hmm. and he had come from Cincinnati. And we were lined up to play Cincinnati back. Uh, I don't know if Kenny was. Yeah, Kenny Anderson, I think, was still quarterback in, then in, in 81. And uh, we were going to put their offensive line was monstrous. You know, Munoz and Lapham and all those guys. They sure. were really good. Okay. And we came off the first play after the first set of series. I think we sacked them two times and they lost like 12 or 14 yards. And I came out and I looked at Jim and said, How'd that go? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, so when we when we got out there, people, I mean, they didn't maybe worry about us in the beginning, but by the time the game started, they were worried about us. Yeah, that was just, uh, you know, the, a dominant unit, 
you know, in the early 80s for the Jets and really kind of brought the franchise back into the limelight. I mean, it went through the Namath era back in the Super Bowl three days, but then it went through a long dry spell. And then I think really the sack exchange brought it back to uh, popularity, you know, the whole New York Jets thing, don't you think? Uh, yeah, the identity of such a catchy phrase was perfect. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it really, it really dominated the press era because every week people would look up and see what we did because it actually was Pepper Burris, one of our trainers, was he would keep a commodity board in the training room, you know, about who do you think is going to have one sack, two sacks, three sacks, you know. Yeah. So it was kind of neat, you know, uh, about going into a game and, and then the expectations the expectations going in, then the results after. We made fun with it. It was good. So, but I think a lot of people after the season went on, and we were, we were. I think, I think we set a record at that time with sixty six or sixty seven sacks that year. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it still is, but uh, you know, everybody was looking to see if we would break it. So it was pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, what about Gastineau? I mean, I, I just started covering the Jets back then, so I really wasn't around for like the, the heyday of the sack exchange. Uh, I know you guys had kind of a, I mean, you guys were deadly on the field together. Uh, what was it like off the field? Was it kind of a complicated relationship there? Mark's a little, you know, he's a different kind of personality than you are. So I'm just wondering how you guys uh, clicked, if at all. No, off the field, we didn't see much of each other. It really was. Everybody knew, you know, we were like oil and water a little bit. But there's there's one thing that I always believe that in football, and I had this argument with Joe Walton at the end of my career about what is important, and I said the only thing is important is winning. And, you know, I think he kind of looked at me kind of strange, like he expected another answer. And, uh, you know, winning to me was everything. And if it meant me, if it meant me to play seriously with Hitler for four hours, I'd have played with Hitler. And I hate Hitler. You know what I mean? But you know, Mark and I were a fear fearsome. Yeah. Mark was such a tremendous pass rusher. He, he, you know, you couldn't you couldn't take your eyes off either one of us. You know what I mean? And if you pay attention to one, the other would do it. You know, vice versa. And of course, Abdul and Marty were two perfect guys for us in the middle. So, you know, what we did to other teams and stuff like that, Mark and I, I mean, it, it was such a perfect combination of, you know, the, actually the fear we put people. Yeah, like if you're an offense, who are you going to double team? <laughs> I mean, you really pick your poison. So, I mean, you can't yeah, I mean, you can't double team both. And if you do, maybe, you know, Marty or Abdul's going to get you from the middle. So, uh, and, and that's the thing. We all know what pressure does to a quarterback. And, of course, back then, I think they threw the ball probably 40% less than what they throw the ball today, you know, and what the results we had back then. So it makes it even more amazing. One of the great, you know, you have such a fascinating backstory and I, and I, and I knew this, but I've never asked you about this. So when you came out of high school, you were not a highly recruited player out of the Philadelphia area. And so you actually played semi-pro football before you got recruited by Temple and you, you went under the alias Jim Jones from Poland University. Is that <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, what it was was uh, I played for a team with a bunch of it was a neighborhood people the owners of the team were neighborhood contractors that you know construction guys and they owned this team and we traveled around it was the Eastern Seaboard League. Uh-huh. And we jumped up and down, you know, from Connecticut to Maryland and played teams and they were worried about if I ever had a chance to go back to college 
they wanted me to, to, to remain, remain anonymous on their team, you know, because sure. they didn't want me to draw red flags. Well, I guess one of the games I had against uh, one of the teams we were playing against in college, I just lit it up. I mean, I just, I had six or seven sacks and that I like the press just couldn't believe where'd this guy come from, you know? So I, as a, a uh, novice at, at media, kind of like let the cat out of the bag. I had an NCA, a uh, investigation, all everything. It was, but it was enjoyable. I mean, it, it got me my start, you know, Wayne Harden came out to watch me play right. and gave me a full scholarship. Yeah. Yeah, and then you go to Temple and then get drafted by the Jets, and the rest is history. And then, you know, for some of our younger listeners, they're not going to realize this, but in the 1980s, you, you were not only a, a football star, but you made it to the big screen. You did three movies. <laughs> you made, you, right? Am I wrong here? You did three movies with Burt Reynolds. I think it was Smokey and the Bandit 2, Cannonball Run, and Heat. And I, I just have to ask you, like, how did you – Go! How did you get hooked up with Burt Reynolds? How did this movie thing start? It was very strange. Uh, my wife and I were out one night, and my mo- my mother was watching the kids, and she said to me, "Can we come in like midnight?" And she said to me, "Joey," she says, "You know, Burt Reynolds called." I said, "Yeah." I said, "Did you recognize the voice, Mom? Who was?" She goes, "No." She says, "Burt Reynolds called, and he's going to call you back somewhere, you know, at midnight or from California." <laughs> Burt calls me. It tells me he wants me to put me in a movie. Uh, Hal Needham was doing uh, Smoking the Bandit 2, and uh, he wanted me to come out to California. And how he found it was I was, a, you know, I, my whole background is from trucking. I was a truck driver. Right. And I had an article in Sport where I was holding the truck up. And it, it, the, the article was labeled Killer with a Baby Face. And Bert <laughs> seen the article. Ah. And they called the New York Jets. They got my telephone number, and that—that's really how it happened. Yeah, wow. It wasn't my acting prowess. <laughs> yeah, you didn't get any nominations for Oscars or anything, but I think it must have been—it must have been pretty fun, pretty fun to hang around with, uh, you know, like at a Hollywood set, right? That must have been pretty cool. Oh, it was great. I mean, the guy, some of the guys you meet are just great guys. Some were not, you know, but the, you know, but you get to—you get to. To be on the same role as Jackie Gleason, Jamie Farr. Um, one of my favorite guys is a guy named Jack Elam. Jack was a bit player that always played gun smoke and everything like that. And he played Cannibal Run with us. Me and him used to play Liar's Poker all day. But all these guys, yeah, Dean Martin, uh, um, Dom DeLuise. I have a picture of me holding Dom DeLuise on my shoulder. You know, wow. all these guys were just, you know, uh, icons back then, especially. Yeah. And it was fun to do. Yeah. Wow. Probably not easy to hold Dom DeLuise up on your shoulder. I don't think that's uh, he was a pretty <laughs> he's a pretty big man. And we, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds, of course, passed away. Uh, were you able to keep in touch with him? Uh, you know, over the years after your you know movies together, basically through emails and stuff every now and then. Not too much though. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I never got to California much out there. So, yeah. and he, you know, that's where he lived. But emails every now and then. We go back and forth a little bit, but not, I didn't see him much later. No. Wow. Well, what a great. I mean, Joe, your your life story is incredible. From the Hollywood to Jim Jones at Poland University and Temple, and of course, just being a Jet star for so many years, uh, Ring of Honor, and of course, just congratulations. You got 
named into the New York Jets all-time team last week. The fans voted for that, and of course, that was that was great. That yeah, was, I mean, that's the fans voting. So uh, exactly, and you had to be on that. I mean, you're like in the Mount Rushmore of New York Jets history. So that's no team would be complete without Joe Klecko on it. I want to thank you so much, Joe, for stopping in. Uh, you'd belong in Canton. We got to get that gold jacket on that body of yours and wish you the best of luck the next few weeks as they start this rather elaborate selection process. And we hope, we hope you're there next year. Thanks so much, Joe. I appreciate it, big guy. Thank you. All right. Take care. And welcome to the third quarter. This is the blind side. I'm taking your Twitter questions and Man, I could tell there's some angry Jet fans out there. I got a, you know, a tremendous response on Twitter and appreciate that. I'm going to pick out a few of the best ones and the ones I don't get to, uh, check your Twitter timeline in the next few days because I'll get to those questions as well on Twitter. For now, let's start off with at possible flexible one. And his question is, do the Jets have buyer's remorse with Khalil and Osemele? The line has looked terrible, even worse than last year. Are they holding out hope that they can start to gel, or will there be depth chart changes coming? Uh, yeah, uh, possible. I do think they do have some buyer's remorse with Osemele, who they're paying about $10 million this year. And uh, Ryan Khalil, who's making $8 million. He was a late addition in training camp. Neither one of them is playing well. You could look at it. They don't pass the eye test. I've looked at the analytics. They don't pass that test either. Uh, will they bench those guys? You know, they traded for Alex Lewis from Baltimore in the preseason. He plays left guard. It would not totally shock me if they make that move. Uh, he's a, he's a Douglas guy, whereas Osemele was brought in by the previous regime. And I know Osemele has you know, deeper ties to Douglas from the past, but that would not shock me. But I think they're going to keep going with Khalil. He's only played three games, didn't have a preseason. I think they'll give him more of a chance. Next question comes from at Johnny underscore back. That's B-A-C. Rich, do you see a scenario where Joe Douglas fires Adam Gase at the end of the season if the Jets continue to spiral out of control? Let me say this, Johnny. Technically, Joe Douglas can't fire Adam Gase because... They uh, do not report to each other. They both report to CEO Christopher Johnson. So technically, they're on the same level in the power structure. Uh, now, can Joe Douglas recommend that Gase be fired? Sure, he could do that. Uh, you know, He could go to the owner and say that's his recommendation, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, first of all, Joe Douglas probably feels indebted to Adam Gase because if it weren't for Adam, Joe would not have this job right now. So you get into a very complicated situation there with uh, a lot of po- football, political stuff going on. But no, I, I don't think the Jets are going to change coaches this year. I mean, they gave Adam a four-year contract. Douglas has a six-year contract. They know there's been a lot of injuries. I think they're going to ride this out. Next question comes from I am John Chang. What is your take on Jamal Adams uh, removing the Jets from his social media and then step uh, stopping his WFAN interviews? You know, this is a I know Jet fans are concerned about this. There's either two things happening here. One, he just wants to eliminate all the distractions and focus on football, although I'm not totally buying that, knowing Jamal's personality. The other way this thing that this could be is that he's just setting, sending subtle messages that he doesn't, he's not happy here and he doesn't want to be here. Uh, I think this is a story that bears watching very closely. Uh, 
contracts don't mean anything in the NFL anymore. We've seen guys get traded. Jalen Ramsey's trying to get traded in Jacksonville now. We've seen guys shoot their way out of situations. Antonio Brown did it in Pittsburgh. And uh, we know what happened after that. But the point is he got out of his contract in Pittsburgh. Jamal's contract, you know, he signed through 2020. Um, you know, then they have the fifth year Asha for 2021. But know this, the way the CBA, CBA set up, he can renegotiate his contract starting after this season. So maybe he's angling for a renegotiation. Maybe he's angling to get shipped out. He's very tradable. I looked at the contract. They could trade him at any time without taking a massive cap hit. So it's a situation to me that bears watching because Jamal Adams is a smart guy and he doesn't do stuff like removing his bio, his jet bio from social media unless there's something behind it. So we'll have to stay on top of that one. Next question comes from at G Burns underscore GB. Rich, you didn't write an anniversary piece on Crowell's butt wiping gesture. Uh, that's the one year anniversary piece. I know you really like that. So is that something we can expect? You know what, G? That is a great idea. I'm going to look into that. Thanks for playing editor. Next question at Johnny Boy 2121. At what point do we start the fire sale? Bell, Robbie, Adams, Leo, May. We don't need an all pro safety to win football games. You need young talent at skill positions. A lot of wide receivers are coming out in the draft next year. Great question, Johnny. The trading deadline is about four weeks away. The Jets are going to have to decide what they're going to be as they head into that deadline. Are they going to be sellers? Well, certainly it looks like they're going to be out of contention because they're going to have at least four or five losses by the time they hit that trading deadline, maybe more. So those guys you mentioned, I think they could be in play. For The Jets are going to have to decide, do they want to go long-term with these guys or do they want to cut bait and get some draft capital they can use for next year to continue the rebuilding process? And the next question from at Stangles Ghost, does Bell's lackluster start, uh, uh, let me start, this. I can't even read my handwriting, does Bell's lackluster start, uh, despite him looking better than ever, how much of it does it have to do with the offensive line or opponents recognizing he's essentially their only weapon? Uh, it's, it's the blocking. I mean, Le'Veon Bell, I do not believe, has lost any talent. The blocking has been terrible up front. He's not seeing a lot of eight-man boxes, so you can't even blame it on that. It's been poor blocking up front. He hasn't had his uh, usual daylight. His numbers are way down. He's under three yards of carry. That's just mind-boggling. And so it's not due to Bell. I think it's mostly offensive line play. And let me say this about Bell. I was with him after the New England game, standing by him. He did not criticize the coaching staff. He mentioned how they got outcalled, but he did that in the context of a long list of reasons why they lost the game. I took it as more of a compliment toward the Patriots than a shot at Adam Gase and the coaching staff. Uh, others saw it the same way. They're way off base. He did not criticize the coaching staff. I just wanted to get that out there. And the last question comes from at Dean Long, L-E-O-N-G. Honest opinion about week six. When Darnold is back, Herndon will be back. Same with C.J. Mosley. Do you think this will get things going like they had in the summer when there was so much promise? Well, that's what you're looking for. Week six, of course, they play Dallas, and that's a tough game, <laughs> clearly. Uh, the week after that, they play the Patriots again, another tough game. But on paper, 
statistically, they have the easiest remaining schedule left in the league. To me, they have seven very winnable games. They have Miami twice, the Giants, the Redskins, the Raiders, the Bengals, and the Steelers, who are clearly underperforming this year. So seven winnable games, that's not going to be enough to get them back in the playoff race. But the answer to your question, yes, I don't think it's going to happen all of a sudden. But getting Darnold back in a rhythm, getting Chris Herndon back, trying to figure out this offensive line mess, I do think the Jets can get it turned around. It's not going to be in time for a playoff run. But I do think there are some brighter days ahead. And this is the fourth quarter, the red zone. Chance for me to do a little, uh, get on my soapbox a little bit and talk about uh, life on the Jets beat, life with the Jets. Life with the Jets is a little difficult right now at 0-3. And it got me to thinking, I've been covering this team 31 years. This is only the fourth 0-3 start that I've ever had to cover. You know, you would think it would be more than that simply because of all the struggles the Jets have had over the years. But this is only the fourth time they started 0-3. The last time was actually in 2003. They started 0-4. That was the year that Chad Pennington broke his hand in that gruesome preseason injury against the Giants, and he missed the first six games. And, you know, they just couldn't. They had Vinny Testaverde, who was older at that time, and they just couldn't get couldn't get going. And it was a huge downer because they had made the playoffs, you know, the previous two years, and you know, they're just not having their quarterback. They just got off to a terrible start. And then there was, you know, speaking of not having your quarterback, 1999, they started 0 and 3. Vinny Testaverde blew out his Achilles tendon in the first game of the year. They had Super Bowl aspirations. Everything went down the drain. They had to start Rick Meyer for a few games. Quite possibly the worst quarterback. Well, let me, let me, one of the worst quarterbacks I've covered with the Jets. And that team started one and six before they had a, a really strong finish. But yeah, 0 and 3 and 99. Fan base was just utterly deflated after the Testaverde injury. And then of course we go back to 1996. Yes. The year they went one and 15, they started 0 and 8 that year under Rich Kotite. And funny story about that, a few years ago, it was actually 2014, we were up in Cortland for training camp and Rex Ryan was the coach. And, you know, he one of his press conferences, which were usually pretty fun press conferences, Rex decided he wanted to change it up a little bit. So instead of us asking him the questions, he wanted to ask us questions. So he told me to go up to the podium and pretend I was the coach, and he sat with the reporters, and he started firing questions at me. And one of the questions was, and I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was it was something along the lines, what was your favorite year or the most interesting year you've ever had covering the Jets? And I thought about it for a second, and I said 1996, the year they started 0-8 and went 1-15. and And Rex was like, he couldn't figure, he was perplexed. He's like, why would you pick that year? So, so many losses. And I thought about, you know, there were so many wacky things that had that year. It just strange injuries. And it was actually a very good group of guys. They were good guys to cover. There were a lot of compelling human interest stories that were, that emerged that year amid the losing, amid the adversity. And I found it to be a very, fulfilling season to cover strictly as a journalist. Obviously, 
from a fan's perspective, it was a nightmare. But as a journalist, it was very interesting to cover that type of situation. And I told Rex that that was probably the most interesting year, and he didn't want to buy it. He was totally taken aback and said, no. he goes, you know, that situation would never happen on his watch. Well, let's fast forward a few months to about early January in 2014. Rex was fired after a 4-12 and season, and that morning, the morning he was fired, I got an email from Rex, and he said, he goes, I remember what you said back in training camp and how I responded that day at the press conference. He goes, well, it happened to me. I never thought it would. And I think uh, those are words to remember by jet coaches often go out thinking, I never thought it would happen to me. But more often than not, it usually does. And so that's just a little a little uh, trip down memory lane. Not good memories for jet fans. I realize that 0-3 is not the way you want to be nostalgic. But such is the state of the Jets. They have to uh, figure their way out of this, and the schedule does not get any easier. They play the Eagles next week, and that's going to be a tough one. But we'll keep bringing it to you every week. That's a wrap for this week's show. I want to thank our special guest, Joe Klecko, Jets Great. Thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Jeff Scopin. Uh, I want to please ask you to subscribe to Flight Deck. You can get it wherever you download your podcasts. More good stuff. More good guests coming up in the upcoming weeks. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.